Well, happy anniversary. What? What's he talking about? What's he talking about, Martha? Anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary today. Ryan wants to know. What's For the, what? Today is the 16th anniversary of the passage of the Charter of Rights, Rights and Freedoms. It is uh, also or as a result of that law day. Which, which is it? As a result of that, it's Law Day. Coast to coast. Okay, Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz join me for our regular Wednesday feature called uh, uh, um, uh, <laughs> Left, Right, and Center. What's it called, anyway? Called Left, Right, and Center. And Jeffrey, of course, is a practicing lawyer here in the city. And we, the three of us, thought it might be interesting today just to take a look, since today is Law Day, to take a look at the law. And if you have questions or comments, now, not, not a legal opinion on a case. That's not what it's about. But if you had a question about kind of the general principles of the law. We'd be pleased to hear from you today. And uh, Jeffrey's well prepared, as is Robert. They've come in with piles of books here to, uh, to uh, make sure they've, uh, they've got the information they need when they need it. Well, Jeff's pile is bigger than mine. <laughs> well, now, don't fight tell you something right there. Don't fight, children. Don't fight. Um, I, I want to start off today by asking you, Jeff, as a lawyer, I'm going to get a little personal here. Um, those of you who don't know Jeff, uh, except from the program, may not realize that he is uh, he's a remarkable young man. Um, he is very well respected in the law community. He's involved in, in politics. Uh, he teaches at the university. But he has chosen, and I hope I'm not embarrassing him by this, he hasn't chosen the, the big money route of law. I mean, you deliberately have, I don't say turn your back, don't back on, but you have not sought the expensive office in the high-profile firm making a zillion dollars. And I would like to suggest to our listeners that's not because of any inability on your part to do that. I'm sure you'd be very successful at that. So given that, what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to set up the kind of law that interests you and that obviously you've devoted your life to. What does the law mean to you? It obviously isn't about big cars and fancy offices, and, and I'm not suggesting that lawyers who do that, that that's the only thing they care about. But certainly, your dynamic has been different. You work for neighborhood legal services. You make a fraction of what, what a lot of lawyers who are no better qualified than you are are making in, in a, a more private practice. What does the law mean to you? What, what, what draws you to or drew you and continues to hold you there? Well, actually, when I when I started off, it was something totally different than it is now. And I did and I did the big firm thing for five years. Uh, did civil litigation uh, in the biggest firm in Southern Ontario, and uh, and enjoyed that. That was that was fun. But what I really like about where I am now at a law clinic is it's the uh, uh, Boy Scout syndrome. I I always get to act for the good guy, for the underdog, you know, for the for the one that is really sort of down and out. And I, I find that really motivating. And what the law is for me, uh, you know, as much as I complain about laws and things, I think the law is what holds us all together. It's the rules of the game for our society. And we have a system that's evolved over hundreds of years uh, with a lot of pretty good ideas in them. And I think that that's what, what makes it all possible. You know, without the law at the root of things, we would have, uh, uh, I don't think we could have a civilization. And uh, as much as I complain about uh, the courts and about laws and politicians who make the laws, uh, I like our system when I compare our system to any other jurisdiction that I can think of. I think Canada's got it pretty good and they've got things worked out pretty good. Uh, and I think the law is at the, is at the root of that. They're, those are the set of rules that we all more or less can get along with. Uh, we've got a system for how we figure out what those rules are that we can all more or less get along with. Uh, and, and I think that that's, um, see, that's one of the things I like best about being a Canadian. I'm very proud of that. Bob, I'm going to ask you, uh, Bob's not a practicing lawyer, but is very involved in, in areas where the law has a lot to do with, uh, with the reality of our lives. Uh, yeah, you can't be involved in politics without getting involved with the law. Yeah. 
What, what's, what is the law to you? As corny as the question is, and I understand it's a bit of a corny question, but what does it mean to you? Well, I agree with a lot of what Jeff said just now, that the law is basically what, what melds a society together. And law basically is organized justice. That's why we have it. We, uh, we have this natural right to self-defense, to defend our life, our liberty and property, and the law is the collective uh, set of rules that we've agreed upon to enshrine those basic rights. Um, there are basically three areas of law. You have common law, you have case law, and you have legislation. Uh, unfortunately, the trend recently has been toward more legislation, which tends to override a lot of common law and case law. And uh, I think that's where we see a lot of the problems and, and inequities in our whole social fabric coming apart at the seams is where we have too much legislation. Can you give me an example but, of what, uh, the kind of legislation that does that? Well, for example, um, one of the purposes you have, have laws is to prevent a single uh, entity or an individual from being both or all four of the accuser, the judge, the jury, and executioner. These have to be separate functions. Uh, yet we have, for example, human rights commissions which are effectively the accuser, the judge, the jury, and the executioner. You know, they, they advance their own interest. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, there was just a Supreme Court uh, case just came out of the uh, Supreme Court of Canada in the past week uh, stating this about Canada's human rights commissions and what kind of impact that's going to have mm -hmm. yet, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But uh, th that kind of thing. Um, of course, another important thing about a, a law in a civilized society is to make sure that the civil authority remains uh, higher than the military authority and that the, the army doesn't take over, as is the case in a lot of uh, third world type dictatorships. Mm -hmm. So uh, certainly, you know, our laws handed down, I think, uh, through the thousands of years of uh, tradition and, and building of precedent ever since Roman law, and then with great major strides through British history, the Magna Carta, and, and the establishment of eventually the individual as the, as the basic political unit in a, in a free society. There's an interesting, uh, uh, I think, perception in our society that, and we talk about it, we've talked about it on this show, I think all four, three of us have probably made reference to it at some point. We talk about the English common law and the genesis of our law from that, but you raise an interesting point taking us back farther than that to, to the Roman law, which, which many people would posit was the the reason for Rome's success. It wasn't necessarily about armies, it wasn't necessarily about economic power, that they had a certain the high, yeah. fundamental strength to their society while it lasted was their understanding of and respect for a very clear code of laws. Yes, and they were the first to realize that, that, that authority and, and, and the, uh, for example, they were the first to realize that you had to have your political structure based on geographical representation, not on representation of whether you were of some race, of some creed, of some family or something like that. That changed it all because for the first time in human history, for, for an extended period, people lived under a rule of law that wasn't perfect by any means, not by today's standards, but that was dependable. And that they knew when they were in this certain jurisdiction, they had this right and that right and this right and that right. And based on those rights, they could, they could enact in commerce. Uh, the Roman Empire at its height was not a military society, quite the opposite. The military in numbers, in fact, were very low, lower than they were before the empire became one. It was the later uh, crumbling of the empire again when the government began to legislate more and uh, eventually became the downfall of Rome. 
Jeff, I want to come back to your perspective as a, as a practicing lawyer. Um, and Jeff has alluded to some of the legislative changes and ways we have tried to change our society. I want to talk particularly for a moment or two about the Supreme Court and, and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that, that is being celebrated today. Um, not by everyone, but by some. Um, what is the proper role of, of the Supreme Court? Not necessarily what they're doing. I mean, they've defined their role. Their role is to interpret the Charter, where there are areas where it, it's interpretable, if we can put it that way. The Americans do much the same thing. The Supreme Court justices try, they tell us anyway, try to ascertain what the Founding Fathers would think about an issue were they around today, given what they wrote yesterday. Um, is, our, is the Supreme Court doing the right job, or, or, or is it the right role for them to, as many people see, override not only the will of the legislatures, but the will of the people in general, in defense of this document? Well, it's uh, the role of the Supreme Court clearly is just to interpret, interpret the laws that they've been handed by the legislature. And uh, in Canada, we have a, a constitutional system of government where we have uh, certain documents to get the, the, the ball rolling, starting with the BNA Act in 1867, that uh, Canada was confederated, and uh, basically what the what the government has said to the judges over the years is, here's some broad rules. When we when we make our smaller laws, we'd like to make sure that these smaller laws uh, are consistent with these broad rules. And you guys are the ones who are going to figure out how to make sure that's happening. And if it's not happening, you're going to strike down the smaller laws to make them consistent. Uh, so. The first thing about the, and there is this sort of debate that's known around uh, the concept of judicial activism, and that is, should judges get involved in uh, issues of um, policy? Should they be involved in issues of the way our society operates? Should they be looking at things like abortion or homosexuality or whatever? Uh, or should they just be deciding like contract cases or car accident cases? And the judges never asked for this job. <laughs> the judges were handed it by the government. Mm -hmm. They were handed it in 1867, and we've had constitutional cases ever since. Um, the most prominent uh, type of cases that I'm aware of are ones involving the uh, breakdown in powers between the provinces and the federal government, because the BNA Act says the feds get to rule in certain areas, the provinces get to rule in other areas. Uh, and if one government strays too far into the, uh, into the other's area, then that law is struck down as being invalid. So we saw that in 1980, for instance, when the, um, uh, the, there was uh, substantial changes to the, rent, to the landlord and tenant law and rent control laws at that time by the province, and that law was ultimately struck down by the courts saying, um, because you're wading into an area here that involves uh, federal judges, that's inconsistent with, the, with the, our Constitution, our BNA Act, therefore that law is struck down. It was actually Julius Melitzer who acted on that case for, in getting it struck down. Uh, so that's always been the rule. Now in 1982, when the Charter of Rights came in, that rule was, was dramatically increased because we enshrined an overall law, and uh, if I can find the section here in the, in the Charter that says basically, uh, the Constitution of Canada is the supreme law of Canada, and any law that is inconsistent with the provisions of the Constitution is, to the extent of the inconsistency, of no force and effect. And the Constitution uh, includes the Charter of Rights. And so what they said is, here's some broad principles, and any law that's not consistent with these things is gone. As soon as the judge looks at it and decides that's what's happening, the law is as if it was never passed in the first place. However, they did leave the opting out clause for certain parts of the charter where provinces could say, uh, we don't want to be part of those broad laws for this purpose. Well, that's what I want to ask you about, the, the, the fabled notwithstanding clause. Um, what is it and how does it work? Because it seems to me and to many people that it kind of ultimately defeats the purpose 
purpose of having this document in the first place. If you say, the, the, this is the ultimate law, except when you don't want to obey it. Right. And, and I've got this, this section right here. It's section 33, sub 1, uh, which says, The Parliament or the Legislature of a province may expressly declare in an act of Parliament or of the Legislature, as the case may be, that the act or a provision thereof shall operate notwithstanding a provision included in section 2 or section 7 to 15 of this charter. And uh, so any provincial government or the federal government, for that matter, can say, this specific law we're passing right now, we don't care if it contravenes the charter or not. We want it to be enforced anyway. And the, and the way they do that is by declaring it specifically in the legislation. They say, notwithstanding the Charter of Rights, this is the law. And if that happens, then the courts have nothing to say about it. And that's exactly why Quebec can, can pass language legislation. Mm -hmm. um, because Section 2, of course, of the Charter would, in effect, if it were, if it were enforced, protect the right of people in Quebec to speak the language of their choice and put signs up in the language of their choice. But uh, the Quebec government has ruled in its, in its wisdom that, that the law no longer applies to citizens of Quebec. I think that's an ominous, ominous sign. It, some people have suggested it's the beginning of the slippery slope. Other people have said it's a one specific objection in a very specific case, and, and they would point to Ralph Klein earlier this week or last week, suggesting he might invoke the notwithstanding clause relative to the Supreme Court uh, ruling in the Friend case. And just a, a, such a public outcry came up again. You can't do that. I mean, it's just that's not what it's for, Ralph, that he backed down almost immediately. Mm -hmm. Do you see that, that public sensibility may be fading over time and that, that governments may be more willing to use notwithstanding, Bob? I, I really think it boils down to whether the public supports the point of view being advanced or not. Uh, generally, I, you know, I hate to say it, but it's an expedient way of getting around something. If the general public supports uh, using the notwithstanding clause to get something they want, they'll support it. If, they, if, if the choice is something they disagree with, then the notwithstanding clause is a bad thing. Um, you know, really, I think the, the major thing that changed in this country when we got the Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, was that the onus of your rights has now changed. Before, you had a whole set of natural rights that were basically yours, and it was up to the government to de defend them or not. Now the onus is on the individual to have to appeal to the court to find out even if he has a right that's worth defending. And that changes the whole ballgame. And, uh, you know, it's, it's top-down government. We will continue with our bottom-up radio show here with uh, Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz on left, right, and center celebrating Law Day today. The lines are open at 643-1290, star-1290 on the Cantel, and we're back to take your calls right after this. And our program continues. We're going to the phones now, and Jim is waiting. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. Yes, sir. Uh, Jeff made the comment that the, um, the Charter was the supreme law in the entire country. Right. Now, Jeff, what would happen if you and I went into a legal binding agreement or a contract that you would work for me and part, and not under duress, but part and parcel of that contract was every Saturday morning you would have to come over and, and cut the grass? You'd be bound by that contract, and the Constitution wouldn't even help you. Uh, okay. Say you wanted to back out of that contract and went to the courts for a constitutional ruling. You'd be bound by that contract. Yeah, that's sort of a different kind of law. Oh, oh, but your comment was that the law was, the Constitution was supreme. It's not. And I say to you that contract law is the highest law in this land because that's what the churches are using. They're incorporating on the homosexual issue. They're getting into law, legal binding contracts with employees that they won't, they haven't, or they won't do this. And the Constitution, and they have no rights. But contract law is supreme. If you sign your name on a dotted line without duress, you're bound by that contract. Mama, uh, uh, it's never that simple. I, yeah, <laughs> I, and I want to I ask Jeff a specific question about that, because my understanding was that...
Notwithstanding, whether you were under duress or not, you are not, you do not have the ability to sign away your constitutional rights. That's what I was That's told some years ago with, the, with a lawyer. That, that, and it's not that simple, but that ultimately, if it was ever put to an ultimate test, that in this society, under our charter, you do not have the right to sign away your rights. How can you sign away your rights? Well, well but as Jim is suggesting, in some contract, in some contract situations, you may sign away yeah. certain of your rights. Well, like if, 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 I, if he contracts to cut my grass on Saturday without any duress, and then goes to the court and says, I've changed my mind, is he not bound by the contract? Well, well you, may, you may be, and uh, but then the question is what happens. You know, the, the most they're going to do is award some damages from it. But that that basically is w within the area of what they call private law, whereas the charter is in the area of what's called public law. Um, when sort of push comes to shove, as between the two, I, I would suggest that the charter would outweigh a contract. For instance, if you did contract away a right that you had under the charter, um, I don't think a court would allow the other side to enforce that right. But is that not an interesting question? And does oh, yeah. that not open up a whole Pandora box about two-party agreements and a third-party intervening. Well, this is, and this is also a big area right now involving um, private clubs, for instance, where uh, it's clear law in Canada that if you have a private club, the charter doesn't apply. Exactly. There, there are clubs in Toronto now where I can go to restaurants in Toronto and bars, and I don't, but I can smoke there. And the government can't touch me because it's a private club. Mm -hmm. As soon as you enter, you pay a dollar to join the club as a member. But you agree to their bylaws. But again, what happens is that uh, is, there's a maximum that my uh, tax professor had taught me. It's about the only thing I remember from tax law, and that is that uh, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. And uh, he seemed to be saying you can only push something just so far. And if, if you have a restaurant that you're calling a private club, you'd be pushing it pretty far. Uh, that the courts have got, there's all kinds of cases about what's private and what's public. Well, I understand that, but it opens up a whole new scenario. Oh, yeah, it does. Of yeah. two party agreements and a third party coming in. Inter like, for instance, I mean, I'm against income tax. I don't think the government has any right to enter a two-party agreement. I've contracted to work 40 hours a week for a thousand bucks a week, whatever, and they come along and they take money out of my pocket. Oh, yeah. Where's the legal and moral grounds to do mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Oh, they surely got the le they've got the legal grounds. No question about that. They but do another a two-party agreement. Oh, sure. The other thing that, that's interesting, though, is that if you look for where the law is that says a contract is binding, you'd find it's not written down anywhere, or at least not by a legislature. There's never been a law passed by a government saying contracts are binding. That's that's the common law that Bob was talking about earlier. Yeah. Going back to uh, sort of medieval England. Jim, you've raised some very interesting points. I appreciate your call today. All right, bye-bye. Thanks very much. And Henry's up next. Good morning, Henry. Hi, Jim. How you doing? Fine, thanks. Summer and Mets. How you guys going? Not bad. Yeah. Good. Can I ask you something? Our Charter of Rights and Freedoms and all that, is it true that there is no, no provision within Charters of Rights and Freedoms for personal property? So, in effect, no Canadian owns anything. It, is, it is true, true that there are, are not property rights specifically defined in the Constitution, and ironically, even if there were, I don't know how big a difference it would make as long as there's a notwithstanding clause in the Constitution. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, I know there are movements about that, that are hollering for entrenching property rights in the Constitution, but then there, it's a catch-22. The Constitution itself can override any right that it ascribes. And does that make it a useful document, or does that make it a dangerous document? Uh, you know, I talked earlier about the Roman Empire lasting so long because it had a law that people could depend on. What we have with the Charter is a series of laws we can't depend on. Uh, for example, what happens to the businessman that enters into a contract, he makes a long-term investment, long-term choices, and along comes the government and changes the rules of the game out from under him? That's the biggest thing that scares business out of any country. That's what's called stability. And uh, law is a very important ingredient in that whole mix. Is it true also that we're the only Western society that doesn't have property rights entrenched 
Well, I'd be surprised. I doubt it. I like, doubt England it. doesn't even have a constitution, for one thing. Uh, and certainly you can own property. There are laws that say you can own property, but they just don't happen to be in the, uh, in the constitution. But, so, so in theory, government could come along and confiscate anybody's property That's for whatever right. reason. All the government has to do is pass a law to take your property, and you as an individual have no basic protection in that event. Um, that, that's a terrible thing to say. We're, we're sort of lucky that we have, you know, basically uh, generally good people in government that aren't doing this on a massive scale. But again, taxation is one example of that, just like Jim was talking about. And that's why you don't have property rights entrenched, because as soon as you did, the government couldn't tax you in the manner it does now. But bear in mind, the government can also change the charter anytime it wants to. It can change the constitution. We, we still have a system where you vote for folks and they make the laws. And if they don't, don't like the laws, you vote for somebody else and they can change them. Everyone, including the constitution. It's harder to change, but they can change anytime they want. Well, they need seven provinces and some percentage of the population, isn't it? Yeah, I, I can't remember. Yeah. Henry, thanks for your thoughts today. Okay, thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Right, bye. I've had the opportunity to, uh, um, to speak to Jeff's law classes a number of times at Western. He's been kind enough to invite me, and I've always talked on the same theme, which is my concern that the law, in a practical sense, the law, when you need, we talk about the law, when you need a lawyer, that for many Canadians, uh, the, we've been disenfranchised, that the cost of doing business before the, before the courts has become prohibitively expensive, uh, and that, that for that reason, the law is accessible to the rich and the poor, but less accessible to the people in the middle. I've been interested in it each time I've done that, and it's two or three or four, I forget how many now. Um, the, the young lawyers in the class, or, or would-be lawyers in the class, generally seem to be quite surprised by this, and I don't seem to get much support for my concern from these folks who are going out in the world to be lawyers. Jeff, I want to ask you about that. You know, I've discussed about it before, but do you think that's a valid concern, that the law can be prohibitively expensive for the average individual? Oh, it's a huge concern, and there's the, uh, the legal maxim, how's it go, that the, uh, like I said it before on the show, that the, uh, the courts are open, the doors of the courts are open to all, just are the doors of the uh, Savoy Hotel. Uh, that is, that if you're rich enough, you can get in there, but if you're not, you can't. And uh, one thing that, that sometimes surprises people because they watch American TV is that uh, in the States, you know, when somebody gets arrested, they say you have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be provided for you. Well, that's the States. It's not Canada. We don't have that. And if you get arrested, you have no right to a lawyer. If you can afford a lawyer, you can get one. But if you can't afford a lawyer, you may not get one. But then the other big hole that, uh, that you've pointed out many times is that uh, even with legal aid, it means that poor people can get lawyers in some cases, but it leaves the middle class uh, extremely vulnerable. And uh, I'm just trying to remember what it was that uh, I have a judge who comes to speak to my class each year, and it seems to me that last year he had said that the average cost for a civil lawsuit, that is, if you sue your neighbor over a fence dispute, the average legal cost for each side are $20,000 now, and it will take three or four years to get to a trial. Uh, and uh, I have a, a former uh, mentor of mine, um, really smart guy, had talked about the courts as being, he said, it seems like sometimes we forget why they're there, and his perspective was that they're there to help us get over our differences, to be an honest sort of uh, independent broker to get over mm -hmm. our differences. And he said, you know, if, if the courts don't do a good job of that because they become too expensive and too slow or they're not perceived to be fair, then people will find other ways to settle their differences and they may not be nearly as, uh, as civilized as what we would hope they would be. Uh, and he was really worried about courts losing their relevance for the average person. Most people could, could just couldn't afford to go to court. There's no way. We've got a caller on the line. Andrew's joining us. Good morning, Andrew. Hey, Joe. Yes, sir. I was just wondering, uh, is there too much religion involved with the writings of our laws? I was just wondering if you guys had an opinion with that, or 
if well, there is a lot. a lot of that. Like, you know, you swear an oath to God that you'll tell the truth on the witness stand, whereas maybe it would be better just to inform the person of perjury. I would, I would argue that the basis of our whole legal system is the Hebrew codes handed down from the Old Testament. That's oh, where really? they come from. Oh, sure. You know, when you've got your Ten Commandments and your Golden Rule, and those, I think, are the basis of the common, British common law, uh, which is the basis of our law. Yeah, and you, you've got the commandments, thou shalt not kill, acknowledges the right to life, thou shalt not steal, acknowledges the right to property. Um, these are basic codes that uh, are not just Christian and not just of one culture. I mean, these, these are basic necessities to human survival. I think uh, the fact that a lot of people argue they are religiously based uh, doesn't get to the metaphysical fact of the nature. It just gets to the, the, the traditional fact of it. The metaphysical fact is you have to have these principles in a society just in order to survive. You couldn't get up in the morning if you're worried about your neighbor shooting you through the head. I mean, but, you know, <laughs> you we live in a trading society, not, not in, a, in a coercive society, or we should be. And it's interesting that you bring up the religious aspect of it, that, uh, as you may know, we wear robes in court. You know, we wear the black robes with the wool white tabs and stuff. Those are based on ecclesiastical robes, on, on priest or minister robes. And the reason is that uh, when, when uh, well, I guess back two, three, four hundred years ago, the courts were based in the churches. Uh, that's where the law came from, and that's where you went to get your uh, differences resolved, and that's why we still wear those uh, those uh, priest robes. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Andrew, thanks for the call. Yeah, anyway, anyway. going to pause for a moment. Still more to come. Today is Law Day, the 16th anniversary of the signing of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Robert Metz and Jeff Schlemmer are my guests, as they are every Wednesday on Left, Right, and Center. We're t discussing the law today, what it means to us, and people will take a look at what it might mean in the future, too. You join us if you'd like at 643-1290. Happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, for a cheerful toast and fill it, happy anniversary, but be careful you don't fill it, happy anniversary. Well, thank you, Ryan, for that, uh, which is very, very thoughtful of you. Today is, of course, the 16th anniversary of the signing of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and on this edition of Left, Right, and Center, uh, uh, Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer and I are discussing the law. Bob, I want to, or, or Jeff, rather, I want to come back to what you said before about the, uh, just plucked a figure out of the air, about $20,000 in an average civil suit on either side. How do we avoid that? I mean, other than not suing in the first place, but how do we get to a position where it's got to cost you $20,000 to have your a problem with a neighbor, as you said, adjudicated by some impartial third person? By what stretch of imagination or logic or or long-time practice, did we ever get to that point? Well, we've done it slowly, and uh, what we've done is that we've added steps to the to, along the way, and we've added papers that ostensibly make for a more just result. So, for instance, we said at one point it's unfair to come to court and not know what the evidence is the other side is going to introduce. You should have a chance to know what it's going to be so you can prepare a response to that. So we introduce uh, what are called examinations for discovery, where each side has a chance to go and question the other side under oath about what they're going to say at court, like a preview, if you like. Um, we have uh, uh, detailed rules about uh, disclose or production of uh, information. We have detailed rules about exactly what the paperwork has to look like that you that you are going to pr provide to the court. Detailed rules about how many copies. In fact, there's even a rule that says what what uh, thickness the paper has to be and what color the folder has That's to right. be. I just, yeah. I'm, I'm it's stunned. become extremely complex. And in fact, this this goes back to a, an earlier analogy, and that is that I had talked earlier about the uh, uh, churches being the courts. At that time, what had happened was that there was a court called the Court of Chancery, which became extremely 
extremely hidebound with, with detailed rules, micromanaged rules, mm -hmm. exactly had to do this, that, and the other thing. So what happened was people started resorting to the churches, to what was became called the court of equity, to get their problems solved. And I would think that the you know everything old is new again. It's the same thing, that we've become so into micromanagement of every last detail of the stuff, it becomes extremely expensive. It's extremely hard just for us to keep up on all the little changes. What font do we have to use in court? It just gets ridiculous. And, and, um, and never mind the manpower, getting the evidence together, photocopying. I mean, these people have to be paid. Well, exactly. Pay their salary. From my end of it, those are all things that they would argue will make for a stronger case, and that's fine. But from my perspective, that should be up to the lawyer to decide what how they're going to present their case. And if a person can't afford to do all that stuff, they should be able to just go in front of a judge and however inarticulately say, here's the problem. You know, this guy's put a fence in the middle of my backyard. And a judge should be able to rule on that, uh, you know. And if they can afford to have all fancy briefs and all kinds of fancy arguments and everything else, that's great. But if not, they should at least be able to get in the courtroom. Well, if we just use, and I know it's just an arbitrary figure, but I suspect it's probably pretty accurate. The forty thousand dollars both these people have invested for forty thousand dollars, you could hire a judge for a month to sit and hear your case, and never mind all the lawyers, couldn't you? I mean, are uh, uh, we? Almost seems that way, doesn't well, it? Well, I mean, you look at it and say, well, where, where'd all the money go? Because all, everything you've just described, as you said, is supposed to lead or, or improve the prospects of justice truly being served. Well, you, you could make the case that if you had the time with a, with a judge, with a, you know, a skilled uh, uh, mediator, and he had a, a week or two or three or four weeks to sit down with you, that he could, he could find all that out without you having to go through all this rigmarole and enrich all these wonderful lawyers. Yeah. Well, that is happening. That's a huge growth industry right now, and that's what they call private courts. And that is that... Uh, uh, usually retired judges will offer their services as arbitrators and they will hear cases and uh, there'll be agreement in advance about what the rules are going to be. Are they going to follow the rules of court? Again, that requires different? a contract where you, where you contract that you're going to agree to abide by the decision of that third party. And what happens when the person <laughs> reneges on that contract? Will, will, first of all, will the, uh, will the general government, the major court system, uphold the contract? And second of all, do you end up back in court anyway, in the real well, court? Well, what happens, uh, my understanding is that these guys have been doing it for a while, and they're smart judges, so they have documents that you sign where you agree not to go to court, you agree not to undertake any kind of an appeal. And so what would happen then is that if you try that, you get thrown out of court real quick. But the problem is you're still spending the $40,000. What we need to have is a system for the people who don't have $40,000 to be able to get in front well, of some smart, fair person and make a decision That's quick. interesting, and you're saying that in order to get some justice, the person has to basically sign away the rights that, we're ju that I was just yeah. looking for an example, yeah. and here it is. And the main yeah. advantage is speed. Like, the main reason that those sure. have been so su successful is because they're really fast. You may have seen... Um, but, speed, but speed wouldn't be an advantage if the, if the regular system wasn't as, to use your word, hidebound. Oh, sure. Yeah. No question. And, and to me, I, I talk to judges, and they say, look, we've been tinkering for years, and tinkering is just not cutting it. Uh, we're losing the battle. And there is this natural tendency in any... Uh, civil service, I think, to become more bureaucratic. You know, that every year there's new forms coming out, every year there's new rules coming out. Uh, you know, if you're a bureaucrat, it seems like the solution to everything is more bureaucracy. And somehow somebody's got to grab the system by the throat and say, we're just going to have an alternative system here. Maybe what they could do is continue with that system if they want, but have an alternative system, fast-track system, where you just come into a court with whatever you got. And as you point out, there is a precedent for doing that. Yeah, sure. The, the, the split from the chancery to the equity. We're going back to the phones, and uh, caller Mark is with us. Good morning, Mark. Morning. Yes, sir. I'm just wondering, um, no fault insurance. Mm -hmm. What is all of the legal stuff behind that? <laughs> like, are you allowed to sue people? And if you do, do you sue the insurance company or blah or blah? Like, 
Um, it's just an extremely confusing thing to try and go through. Yeah, again, we're, we, I, we can't ask, and I don't want to ask Jeff to, for legal opinions in a narrow sense, but in the broad sense about that, how do, we, how do we justify a system that is supposedly, quote, no fault, when in fact somebody usually is at fault? Well, there's, uh, there's all kinds of uh, philosophical questions there. The, the, the first thing I would say is that you're right, the system is extremely complicated because sometimes you can sue and sometimes you can't. Uh, sometimes there are, there are limited things you can sue for and others you can't sue for. Uh, it's, it's very complicated. However, the, the broad uh, idea of no faults was to get the lawyers out of, the, out of it because they recognized that millions and millions of insurance dollars were going to, to line lawyers' pockets each year uh, that effectively at the end of the day should be ending up either in the pockets of the, of the people paying the premiums or in the pockets of the victims. It was just a pure dead loss to the system trying to figure out whose fault the things were. Uh, so the rationale was that uh, basically let's forget about whose fault it is, let's just take the lawyers right out of this picture. And it was estimated that about 95% of car accident cases vanished when no-fault law first came in in 1990. Uh, so the idea was that we'd take all the money that we saved by not having the lawyers involved and not having these expensive trials and sort of divide it between the people, the victims, who will get slightly more money in most cases well, yeah, in most cases, uh, and the uh, the um, policyholders who won't have to pay uh, increases. And of course, this was all driven by massive increases in um, uh, in damage cases in the 80s, the mid 80s. You may recall that uh, old cities were taking down their playground equipment, and it was just horrendous. There was a the big case in um, somewhere just e uh, west of Toronto, where a kid on a minibike was awarded six million dollars uh, against the city who owned the vacant lot that he crashed his minibike into some other minibike on. So we had this pendulum swing, saying these are horrible stories. We've got to get out of this. We'll just take the courts out of the system. But what ended up happening is whenever you try to make a change like that, there's all kinds of compelling reasons to have exceptions. So, for instance, they said, well, if it's a catastrophic case, you should still be able to sue for that. Um, you know, that, that uh, there should be things like, for instance, uh, they, they imposed a maximum amount of income replacement that you could get. And it was way less than most people made. So they said, well, you should be able to buy optional insurance that would take you up to your actual income. But then it becomes a, a question uh, that often you have to litigate in that area. Uh, so these things have broad, simple uh, rationales but then they become extremely complicated when you try to introduce them. Basically, no fault is like almost saying no justice, isn't it? It's, it's like you're not worried about who is the responsible person anymore, which is what a justice system is about. We've basically said in, in cases of automobile accidents, we, we're not going to care about that anymore. Oh, yeah, and uh, that's the uh, trade-off. There's a huge concern about that from a, a public perspective. One of the things we talked about, I think, maybe well, I think last it would week hurt the respect show. for law, just in basic... Yeah. And, the, and part of the thing we talked about before was that theoretically the criminal system is there to uh, is there to deal with the moral issues and to deal with assigning responsibility. However, we, as we've said, for some reason the criminal system often doesn't involve compensating your victim, which should be where the starting point. Right. You which know? you and I agreed on last week yeah. should be a major factor. Mark, thanks for your call today. It's an interesting topic. Thank you. Appreciate it, sir. And uh, Shirley's with us. Hi, Shirley. Hi. Hi. I've got a little voice problem, so you'll have to bear with me. That's okay. Two thoughts. Okay. I have heard um, over the course of a few years about professional jurors, and I wanted to ask uh, your guest what his opinion of this, and the reason that I was concerned with it, because, um, and I know you don't want to talk about specifics, but I was involved in something where the jurors had awarded me a specific amount of money, Yes. And but because they didn't understand and didn't answer one of the questions, um, it was thrown out. Um, and yet they still think to this day that I got that. Mm. And the question came up about professional jurors and the idea of jurors today being a lot of American programs. Mm -hmm. 
uh, especially, you know, law cases and things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I was told by a lawyer that truth has no place in a court of law. Which really well, that's justice. Me, but I just want to know about the comment from your guest there about this uh, idea okay. of professional jurors. Shirley, you, you have a cup of warm tea and we'll get an answer for you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, well, what about, this is an issue that's come up from time to time, that the system might be better served if we had a professional class of, of, of jurors, people who were not lawyers, but certainly trained in the law and familiar with the law and chosen for their probity and or uh, ability to cut to the chase. Uh, but it's fraught with dangers, too. As, as a lawyer, how, how would you feel about that? Well, juries have been, have been very controversial, and the trend has been away from juries for uh, at least as long as I've been practicing the last 15 years, that there are fewer and fewer jury trials, um, particularly in uh, civil matters. Uh, you hardly ever have a jury anymore. And um, the reason for that has been that the perspective from the standpoint of the lawyers is that juries are hard to gauge. It's hard to tell what they're going to do. Uh, and then with a judge, you have a much better idea of what they're likely to decide in a case because they are experienced, whereas juries have no experience. There's also this strange rule in Canada that juries aren't allowed to take notes, whereas judges are required to take notes of everything that's going on. A jury could hear a case for three months, so they're not supposed to take any notes. So how at the end of the day they can remember any of this now, stuff? Now, where did that come from? I don't know. It's just genesis? bizarre. It's bizarre. So it's, it's interesting, too. I know what, when I was involved in a court case myself, one of the first questions I was asked as a witness was, had I referred to any notes before testifying there? And I, you know, they want you to go by some vague memory, not by anything more specific. Now, do you th is there anybody anywhere in the legal system who thinks that's a good idea? Well, there's obviously somebody somewhere because they could change it tomorrow. Well, that's what I, that's, that would be my question. Why I can't imagine why anybody would think that was a that was a positive. So why isn't it changed? I know the rationale is that juries are not because they aren't trained uh, to sort of assess whether people are telling the truth or not because they're not legally trained to assess what's relevant and what's not relevant. That they're supposed to make their decisions just on their impression, and and that's the, the theory behind it. Uh, the the concern, the potential mischief, of course, people talk about is well, you know, you got a smooth lawyer in there who's a good talker, you know, he can create an impression that's totally misleading and when the um, uh, the caller talked about how truth has no place in a courtroom um, I know what she's talking about there and that is that uh, truth isn't truth uh, will often tell clients truth is not what's going to happen in a courtroom what's going to happen in a courtroom is evidence and evidence may be totally different than the truth and a judge is going to hear the evidence and make a decision about what happened and once they decide that's what happened. You know, whether it's true or not is irrelevant. They've heard some evidence, however flawed it may be, and when there's all kinds of evidence that eyewitness evidence is the worst possible yeah. kind of evidence. Yeah. If you take half a dozen people who see a car accident and ask them what color the car was, you usually get half a dozen different answers. Um, and yet, that's the process that we've all agreed on to resolve these disputes. But at the end of the day, you don't spend a lot of time in courts talking about justice, like you would never as a lawyer say this is the just result, Your Honor, in a summation. You get laughed out of court. Uh, you don't talk about what's true. You talk about witness so-and-so said thus and such and they should be believed because they had these qualities of credibility. But uh, truth is something that just doesn't come up. Now what, I'm, I'm being a little cynical and, and a little um, uh, ironic because of course the theory is that the adversary system will ultimately arrive at truth better than any other system however flawed it is, the Churchillian thing you know, it's the worst mm -hmm. system there is except for all the other ones. Mm -hmm. um, so our theory is that it's the best chance we've got of getting truth and it's the best chance we've got of getting justice but we do it indirectly. Nobody ever talks about it directly. Right. Now, now with respect to, to this, this question of professional jurors, you know, I, I, that kind of scares me a bit but I, I would like to see an improvement. I don't like the conscription system where they just 
you know, haul you out of Come your on life. With me. Yeah. Come on down here. I think First there should day. be some kind of a, a pool established where people, you know, it's like a blood donor card type mm -hmm. of thing where everybody puts their name in that they are available or, or whatever and maybe selected from a pool so that at least the people contacted come voluntarily. I don't think it suits anybody's case to their benefit one way or the other when you're dragging jurors into a situation they don't want to be sitting there at the first place, it kind of makes me think twice about getting in front of them. Mm -hmm, absolutely. We have to pause for just a moment. We will be back to take more of your calls and continue our discussion on Left, Right, and Center with Schlemmer and Matt. Left, Right, and Center with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. We're here today on the 16th anniversary of the signing of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's Law Day in Canada, and we're talking about the law, as we said earlier, in generalities. Uh, we're not, uh, please don't call and ask Jeff to <laughs> advise you about a particular case you may be in. That's not what it's about today. Rick's up next. Hi, Rick. Hi, how are you? Fine, thanks. I've been involved in a case recently. It was a criminal case, and it was a real eye-opener to me. Um, the police, when they, uh, when they took our, our evidence, they indicated that it was meticulously documented, and we expected this to be over with very quickly. But what we found is that there, there's been a, approximately eight preliminary hearings where um, the uh, Crown attorney would show up and the defense would show up, and the Crown Attorney and Defense would talk before court started, and the defense would indicate that they need more time to review this file or whatever. This is the first time this particular Crown Attorney has even looked at this file, so he's not about to, uh, to you know, argue this in court and say, no, we've got to go to trial now. So he agrees. And, then, and we've gone through eight preliminary hearings, and this is... This definitely underscores to me why the, the legal system is so costly and why it's so cumbersome. There's got to be a way to streamline this. Yeah. Well, certainly there are lots of people who want to do that. Jeff's talked about it on the program. Bob's talked about the necessity of doing it, but... I guess it comes down to what price is justice worth, whatever someone's definition of justice is. How far will they go through a court system to prove that they are right and the other person's wrong, which is basically what's happening in any dispute. Um, it comes down to the, the person pushing the case. In a criminal s situation, it's a totally different thing, of course. I'm talking civilly. But uh, it comes down to the price someone's willing to, to put on something. I, would you agree with that, Jeff? Or? Yes, and the other dynamic that, that, uh, that you've mentioned is that sometimes it doesn't serve the interest of one side to have something happen quickly, or it may not serve their, their interest to have it happen cheaply. Uh, so the, there's the, uh, they call the deep pockets approach to litigation. If you're a big entity uh, and you know that your opponent is a small entity, then it serves your interest to make it as expensive as you can to try and make it impossible for them to get to a trial. Or if you're a defendant, you might not want to have a trial and have a conviction because then you're that's going to happen to you, you might put it off. Ironically, under our charter, of course, you have a right to a fast trial, um, you know, but some people don't want a fast trial. But it, it seems to be a, an innate flaw that's built into the system. Obviously, th this apparently is a very open and shut case, and the guy will be found guilty in the end. Mm -hmm. yep. But um, it, this has gone on for almost two years now. Well, and uh, I, I wish that all of us here wish we could tell you that we're surprised to hear that, but none of us are. It, it goes on every day, and the, the quick answer, there isn't one. It's got to be fixed. Yep. How are we going to do it? Well, they're still working it out. Well, the only way I see doing it is to establish an absolute deadline. Listen, by such and such a date, everybody get their case in. We're going to hear it that day. That's it. It's over. Now, the problem is on the other side of the coin, people will argue, well, that's not justice. You know, you come back to that justice argument. I didn't get my chance to get this fact in or that fact in. Well, you've got to set a deadline sometime. I, I just 
you know, everything in life is like that. Mm -hmm. I don't get an article written or get anything finished until I know I have that deadline, and it just seems to work that way. Yeah, Rick, I have to leave it, but I appreciate your call, sir. All right. Thanks for joining us. And Susan's up. Hi, Susan. Good morning, Jim. Yeah. Um, I was kind of curious about the comment about car insurance and replacement income. I thought the figure of around 50000 per annum would replace the income of about 80% of Ontarians. Well, I don't know. Again, okay, we're, we're not talking about specifics. We're talking more about the general yeah. general well, principles. Here, because Susan. it's Law Day, I was interested in um, the, your guests' opinions on the um, the significance from 16 years ago of how the um, Constitution um, set up the ducks for the multilateral agreement on investments. How it how it today enables the multilateral agreement on well, investments. Have there been any court cases such as through the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench? Susan, there isn't going to be an MIA, it looks like now, so it's kind of a moot point, don't you think? No, no, no. I, I, well, I didn't be interested in their opinions, if well, they have one. I'm not sure. Well, we I wouldn't that's think that's it would have an effect. Bob says he doesn't think it would have an effect. An agreement like that could have been made between countries before the Constitution existed. Jeff, any, uh, yeah, no, the government certainly had authority to uh, to enter into agreements with other countries absent the, the, this constitution. There was another constitution prior to that. Um, as far as the charter, I, I'd have to think that one through as to whether there are implications. There certainly are implications, and uh, there's been a lot of talk about a concern if we agree with other countries that will limit our human rights or will limit our access to health care or whatever else, that may conflict with the charter, and, and that's that's something that's been very controversial. There may be a reason that it's not likely to go ahead. All right, Susan, there's what they think, and we're just about out of time here. we got time to get Mike on. Hi, Mike. Hello, Mike. Hello, Mike. Hello, Mike. Well, no, Mike. All right. Well, that gives us time maybe to, uh, to wrap up a little bit here. Um, Jeff, do you think, or Jeff or Bob, do you think the ultimate answer to this maybe is having a parallel system hive off as happened before as you pointed out with the the courts of equity do you think that's maybe easier than trying to to to, to fix you know to modify this huge weighty behemoth that is now the law yeah it'd be very interesting to have an experiment like that and, and the way that changes have occurred in the court has been to try experiments in one place or another a couple of years ago a few years ago now they tried an experiment in the london court of having microphones instead of court reporters um there are experiments so uh, well same with london actually is a test site for a unified family court i think they need to try the alternative of a really simple court like that and see what happens but, but ultimately, we know that our mainstream courts right now are just not available to you, I, and most people. Would you be comfortable with Bob's suggestion that we put deadlines on cases? Uh, yes, and that's happening. That's, the, that's happened in an uh, institutional way through something called case management, where they try. But again, for every you make a hard rule like that, and there's always going to be that's a right. reason for an exception, yeah, and then you've got to argue about and it. And usually a reason I might even agree with, even though I believe in the setting a, a date, you know. Okay. But uh, it can work both ways. Let's go back to the phones quickly. Robert's with us. Hi, Robert. Hi, Jim. Just got a moment left here. Okay, I would just uh, like to uh, quiz your panelists there. Um, if the law is an ass, um, do we have a moral duty to disobey it? For example, like the anti-Semitic laws that the Nazis passed, yes. you know, that, there's an example of the law being wrong. Mm -hmm. um, some people consider the drug laws today wrong. Mm -hmm. We should, do we have a moral duty then to thumb our nose uh, if, we, if we believe tax okay. laws are wrong? Good point. Thanks for the call, Robert. Okay. We'll get an answer for you. Guys, I know it's a big question, but very quickly, where is that moral line? 
that's where the individual draws it basically and I would say the answer in terms of one's morality is yes and that's how laws get changed people have bro broken them and taken the risk and the, the you know the risk of the consequences that could happen but that's the way we've gained our freedom we've never gained it through any democratic process yeah, I'm afraid to say. Any, uh, I would disagree and Canada's a country that, that founded its country based on peace order and good government we've always said that we're law abiders and that uh, in the in these rarest circumstance it may be justified to break a law but for for the most part, the reason we have a peaceful, stable society is because we respect laws by and large. And uh, that uh, when but people I, start saying, well, I don't like this law. law and that law, when people start saying that, that's when we end up with sort of the American situation where people are going off and, and having a lot more violence and instability. But I like, doesn't I that like, speak to the issue that if you want to want the law respected, you have to make laws that are respectable? And basically oh, yeah. laws that are respectable are those ones that, that, that protect our rights and our individual freedoms. And those laws that restrict them, like, I can see a lot of cases to break the law today. I, if I was that guy in Quebec who wasn't allowed to put a, an English language sign on my on my store, I'd be breaking the law. I wouldn't think twice about it because I'd know I was morally right. Mm -hmm. But again, that, that to me is a fundamental difference between Canada and the United States. The United States was formed in revolution. It formed mm -hmm. by breaking a big law and it has, uh, you know, it's always had this individualist tradition of we, we've been well, Canada, the laws that we like and we don't different. like we don't obey. Uh, but Jeff, what, when, when, do, when <laughs> do you make the decision though? Suppose it was a law that you didn't agree with but it was a law of the land. At what point would you think it was okay for Jeff Schlemmer to break that law? Oh, well, certainly we talk about the, uh, the Nazis laws. Those are mm -hmm. ones that everybody agreed to be breaking. But as a broad, uh, broad rule of thumb, my thing is, there are all kinds of laws I don't like, but I respect our system and, and think i got to obey them for now, but I'll try and change them through a democratic process. That's the best way for our society to do it. Gentlemen, thank you both today. It's been a very interesting conversation from my point of view, and I hope for our listeners as well. Um, and, and we would advise you folks to stay tuned for more on the issue of the law. It's one of the big ones, and we've said this before, I think the 21st century, one of the great challenges facing this country is to make the law more accessible to the people, to give it back to the people, really, because it's been taken away from us.